Hello, you are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am Holly Baker, and I will be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. I recently talked with Dr. K. Stephen Prince, Associate Professor of History at the University of South Florida and author of the book Stories of the South. Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. Dr. Prince was one of the presenters at the 6th Annual Gerald H. Schaffner Lecture Series on Florida Culture and History. The topic was Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. Have a listen to our conversation. Welcome and thank you for being here. Of course, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed your lecture last night, by the way, and um, I would like to ask you some questions based on your lecture uh, that was titled, Reconsidering Reconstruction, Regional, National, and Global Perspectives. So first, what was your lecture about? Well, uh, as you know, I was sort of one half of of the the lecture team last night with a little tag team operation going. And my perspective was uh, we were asked to sort of think through new directions in the study of of Reconstruction um, based on our own work. Uh, So I made sort of two arguments. One was that uh, the study of Reconstruction is enriched with the inclusion of popular culture. Um, The historiography of Reconstruction tends to be dominated by political and social approaches, and with very good reason. There's been an abundance of excellent scholarship uh, along both tracks. But the study of popular culture, cultural history, uh, has made an enormous impact in a lot of other historical subfields, but for the most part, the study of Reconstruction hasn't really benefited from a cultural approach. So that was, that was one of my suggestions, and the other was to sort of think through uh, the chronology of Reconstruction, and I called for a, what I'm calling a long Reconstruction, and I'm far from the only person to have advocated this, but I think rather than the sort of traditional textbook understanding of a Reconstruction that starts in 1863 or maybe 1865 and then ends in 1877, what happens if we if we think about Reconstruction as a longer process? What happens if we carry it through into the 1880s or the 1890s or the early 20th century even? And my answer to that question is I think we, we see a lot of interesting continuities and we discover that a lot of, of the conversations that we think about as, as Reconstruction conversations are actually still being had in the 1890s and afterwards. And that a lot of the questions that animated the Reconstruction enterprise in the 1870s haven't really been solved by 1877. So I think there's a lot to gain by taking the sort of longer view of of the period. Well, speaking of the um, 1890s, in your lecture last night, you talked about a show um, in Brooklyn called Black America that opened in 1895. Um, Could you tell me more about that and how that ties into what you're talking about? Sure. So this is this is something that I uh, that I wrote about in my book, uh, Stories of the South, Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity. And it was an event that I sort of stumbled upon. Um, It's well known among performance studies sort of scholars, uh, but historians, to my knowledge, haven't really spent much time with Black America. Um, Basically what this is, is it's a a production that grew out of of the history of of minstrelsy, of of blackface minstrelsy, that is white performers putting on makeup and and acting the role of of African Americans. But Black America is sort of that project taken to its most, I think, extreme and sort of spectacular and excessive. Um, so what they did was literally attempt to rebuild a southern plantation uh, in Brooklyn on land borrowed from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. 
hired something like 500 African-American performers. I mean, so these are actors who live in New York and Chicago and make their living on the stage who were hired for the summer to effectively play the role of plantation laborers from the Deep South. It's not entirely clear if they're free or enslaved. It's sort of they're in this kind of nexus between the two. Um, so they do a couple of stage shows each day, which are sort of traditional minstrelsy fair with song and dance routines and that sort of thing. Um, but then the real sort of development at Black America is the fact that visitors to the fair, to the events, get to not only attend the performance, but also walk around, uh, tour the cabins, tour the cotton fields, and actually speak to the performers off stage. So the performers were not only hired to play the role of, of plantation slaves on stage, but also to sort of play that role off stage in conversation with uh, with the visitors, with you know New Yorkers who who came ex- apparently to to experience you know um, real life in the sunny South, as all the promotional material said. And it's 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 really a fascinating event. There's a a, a real commitment on the part of the uh, the the promoters to the, this idea of authenticity. Um, they make this claim that these are not actors, uh, but they are actually real plantation laborers imported from the Carolinas and from Georgia, which as near as I can tell is completely untrue. These are actors who have been hired, as I said, in New York and Chicago to play plantation slaves. But um, sort of along the same lines as a lot of the you know ethnological exhibits at World's Fairs in this period, there, there's an attempt to make this a, almost an educational as well as an entertainment sort of uh, performance. So it's just this, you know, fascinating, bizarre event. Um, I used it to, to introduce my remarks last night, because as you said, this happens in 1895. You know, well outside the traditional bounds of Reconstruction, and, you know, for my money, there's an awful lot that this event can tell us about the legacies of slavery and the retreat from Reconstruction and the contested meanings of race and the South and uh, the legacies of slavery in the 1890s. And I think, you know, to exclude events like this from our discussion of Reconstruction, both because it occurs uh, chronologically outside our, our usual bounds and also because it's performance culture, it's a stage show. And that's the sort of thing that is not generally involved in discussions of Reconstruction. So I brought it up last night as a way to, you know, are we really willing to say that Black America in 1895, where they bring a plantation to Brooklyn, are we willing to say that this can't teach us anything about Reconstruction and the retreat from Reconstruction? I'm certainly not. I think that, you know, there's a lot that this this event has to tell us. Yes, I thought it was very interesting. I didn't know about that. Um, and I actually i have always been intrigued by, uh, you know, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show. So that's kind of an interesting almost version of that that I've never known about. <laughs> it's actually, I think, his manager is one half of the team. The team that puts Black America together is uh, Buffalo Bill's manager and then an African-American minstrel star uh, sort of work together to bring this to to New York, and then they move it to Boston uh, later in the summer. Totally a fascinating, you know, bizarre event, but I think really significant once you start to sort of peel back the layers and, and think through the meaning of recreating a southern plantation in Brooklyn in 1895. Definitely. All right, you touched on it a moment ago, but I wonder if you could tell me more about the idea of the Long Reconstruction era. Sure. So I'm, I'm sort of uh, riffing here off uh, one of the, the big moves of recent years in the study of, of the civil rights movement in the 20th century, which is the idea of the long civil rights movement. So Jacqueline Dowd Hall is a historian uh, at the University of North Carolina who, in a 2005 article in the Journal of American History, uh, called for a long civil rights movement, and she argued that if we think about the civil rights movement as starting in 1954 with the Brown versus Board of Ed decision, or even with World War II, we miss the longer history of the movement going back into the 1930s, 1920s, 
um, a lot of that work having been done by uh, female activists and by labor organizations. So she argues for you know lengthening our, our perspective on the civil rights movement in order to to enrich um, our, our stories of, of, of civil rights and the freedom struggle in the 20th century. And nobody, to my knowledge, has has you know theorized it in that sort of way uh, in the 19th century. But a number of historians, myself included have authored works that take a sort of a longer approach to Reconstruction. So rather than going from 1865 to 1877, we have books, um, I'm thinking of, of Stephen Hahn and Gregory Downs and Heather Cox Richardson and Edward Blum and Paul Ortiz, who was the, my co-presenter last night, um, just off the top of my head. Um, but a lot of these folks have written books that you know start in 1865 but carry us through to the 1890s or to 1915 or even to the 1920s and 30s. Um, and, you know, this this long reconstruction, as opposed to the short reconstruction that ends in, in 1877, I think gives us a, a different perspective on on the conversations and the continuities and the conflicts of, of the period. Um, I mean, the most obvious thing is, is, you know, it allows us to include the rise of Jim Crow in the 1890s, uh, political disfranchisement, racial segregation, the peak of, of racialized lynching. All that occurs in the 1890s and into the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and if we include that in our conversation of Reconstruction, then the sort of rise and fall of the Reconstruction regime looks a lot different than, than if, we, if we cut it off short in, in 1877. Um, I mean, to be clear, I think 1877 is a really important point. Uh, I think that election, for any number of reasons, is, is a vital one. I think that the events of that year including but not limited to, you know, Southern Reconstruction-related events are, are exceedingly significant. Um, if you look at the people on the ground in 1877, everybody recognizes that something is happening, that, that Reconstruction as it was is over, and that, you know, it's time for something new. There is that sense in, in the, the media and the press in, in uh, 1877, right after, after Hayes takes office. Um, but on the other hand... I sort of chafe at the traditional sort of textbook understanding of this period in which uh, Northerners particularly, you know, go to bed in 1876 talking about nothing except Southern affairs and Reconstruction and African Americans uh, and white Southern violence, and then they wake up in 1877 paying no attention to any of those things and thinking only about labor and immigration and urbanization and all of the, you know, quote-unquote Gilded Age concerns. that's not the way history works. In fact, the Reconstruction conversation is is coexisting with all of those other conversations about about labor and violence and urbanization and immigration, um, and to sort of you know cloister our discussion of Southern African Americans and and the rights of the freed people, you know, to put to put boundaries on it in 1877, I think misses a lot of really fruitful discussions that are happening later. So that's that's what I sort of mean by the long reconstruction. Last night, you also made a connection between the Florida Constitution of 1868 and Amendment 4 that's on the ballot in Florida in November. And I wonder if you would talk more about that. Of course. So um, Amendment 4 is, you know, I'm I'm wearing my my citizen hat right now as opposed to my, my, you know, professorial hat. Um, Amendment 4 is, for my money, one of the most significant civil rights uh, issues sort of facing the state right now. Um, at this point, something like 1.6 or 1.7 million Floridians are denied the right to vote. 
because they committed a, they were convicted of a felony at some point in the past. Um, as currently written, the Florida state constitution makes it nearly impossible to regain your right to vote after you have been convicted of a felony. In most other states in the union, after you complete your full sentence, so after you finish prison, parole, probation, any fines, you are eligible immediately to regain the right to vote. In Florida, however, after completing your entire sentence, uh, you have to wait five to seven years before adding your name to a waiting list that can take another up to 10, 12, even more years uh, before you hopefully gain an appointment with the governor and his clemency board where they will personally hear your case. Um, in 2011, which was Rick Scott's first uh, full year in office, the clemency board granted uh, clemency to 52 applicants. And again, we have a wait list with tens of thousands of names on it. They've picked up the pace in recent years, 300, 400, 500, but still nothing compared to the thousands of people who are denied the right to vote. Um, so what Amendment 4 would do is to bring Florida in line with other states in the union. I mean, I'm talking about places like Alabama and Texas. Uh, this is not really a radical measure by any stretch of the imagination. And to allow people who have completed uh, all terms of their sentence to immediately be eligible to regain the right to vote. Uh, the amendment excludes people who are uh, convicted of murder or felony sexual assaults. Uh, but otherwise, all people convicted of a felony who have served their complete sentence would be eligible to regain the right to vote. It's estimated that some 1.4 million people might be eligible uh, to, to regain their voting rights on the basis of Amendment 4. Uh, so this will go to the voters on November 6th. It needs 60% uh, of, of the voters to, to pass and become Florida law. Um, the Reconstruction Connection, which is, which is something that isn't talked about all that much, is that the provisions in the state constitution that Amendment 4 would amend go all the way back to 1868, uh, the Reconstruction era, uh, the short version, basically, uh, in the aftermath of the Civil War in 1865, uh, all of the former Confederate states, Florida included, passed what were known as Black Codes, uh, which were sort of designed to limit the rights and freedoms of, of the newly uh, emancipated African Americans. Um, in Florida, as in other places, one of, of the sort of black codes, um, or several of them actually, uh, created several new sets of felonies, several new types of crime designed to be applied largely to African Americans. Um, so fast forward a few years to 1867, the federal government responding to violence against African Americans in the South, responding to legislation like the black codes, responding to the systematic attempts to, to limit the rights and freedoms of African Americans. The federal government uh, passes the Reconstruction Act of 1867, requires each of the former Confederate states to rewrite their constitutions in such a way as to allow African American men uh, the right to vote. Uh, until they do that, uh, the former Confederate states will not be allowed to reclaim their seats in, in Congress in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, so this puts the white elites of, of Florida in a sort of a bind here because they can't really abide the idea of black men voting. On the other hand, they can't deny them the right to vote or else they will fail to meet the dictates of the federal government. So what they do is they write a constitution that um, grants men uh, a universal manhood suffrage regardless of, of previous condition, race, uh, previous condition of, of servitude. Um, but at the same time, they sort of introduce a number of provisions that undercut that universalist language. So they say that everybody can vote, all men can vote, but they lessen representation from areas of the state with large black populations, for instance. Uh, they introduce an educational requirement. Um, so you need to, to display a certain level of educational attainment in order to vote. 
unless you had previously voted in a state election, and of course the only people who had previously voted in state elections were white people, right? And the other thing they do is they introduce this provision regarding felony disfranchisement. So anyone who has ever been convicted of a felony, or at that point certain types of misdemeanors, was denied the ability to vote in, in the state of Florida. Um, Gerald Schroffner, in whose honor we, we gathered last night in his work on, on Reconstruction in Florida, um, lays it out quite plainly. Uh, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he says effectively the, the felon disfranchisement provision is, is an attempt to sort of blunt the impact of African-American enfranchisement. That is the language that is in the Florida State Constitution to this day. Uh, the, the language about felon disfranchisement in Florida, which disfranchises some 1.6 million Floridians to this day, was put in the state constitution in 1868 in an explicit attempt to make it more difficult for African-Americans to gain the right to vote in the Reconstruction era. So that was my message last night regarding, regarding Reconstruction. It's an extraordinarily important ballot initiative. There are many reasons to support Amendment 4 that have nothing to do with the history of, of Reconstruction, and I support it for all of those reasons. But I think this, this long history, the, the reason that uh, the amendment is, sorry, the reason that that constitutional language is there in the first place is, is really telling. You know, this is designed to keep people from voting, full stop. That's why, that's why this language is in the Constitution. Um, and that's something I think that the voters need to consider on, on November 6th when, when they go to the polls. From our perspective as historians, I think it it's shows us the sort of continuing legacies of Reconstruction and how we are still living to this day with the events of, of that time period. Well, I'm glad that you brought that up and you made that connection last night. Thank you so much. It was great meeting you and it was great attending your lecture last night. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. K. Stephen Prince, Associate Professor of History at the University of South Florida and author of the book, Stories of the South, Race and the Reconstruction of Southern Identity, 1865 to 1915. For Knight's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations. 